We're very honored to have Dr. Murray here as a speaker today. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Michael J. Murray. Uh, thanks for having me up. It's, uh, it's always nice to get up to the main campus. Um, so this is a different kind of talk that they asked me to do. I'm used to like throwing fMRIs up and talking about which areas of the brain are activating with different stimuli. But they told me they wanted this to be really personal and talking about how did I get to what I'm studying now from where I started as a young psychiatry resident. So, I am a book guy, total book guy, had been since I was a kid. Words have always infatuated me, and I always learn things much more easily having read them, had a chance to kind of spend some time with them in a book. I also like coffee, and I haven't had any yet today, so <laughs> bear with me. But people on the autism spectrum don't think in words. They think in pictures. So this is Temple Grandin. Um, she was here on the main campus in August speaking. Did anyone get a chance to hear her? She's amazing. She's what a great speaker. Her books are beautifully written. Um, so you would never know that a language and words are something that's difficult or foreign to her. And she really speaks quite eloquently about how she thinks in pictures and how she accesses images as a way of conveying ideas. So I'm going to try something different. I'm going to try and use pictures to tell a story. If anyone has ever seen one of my talks before, all my, I always get blasted because there's words all over my slides, but really hardly any words today. So I did my child psychiatry fellowship between 1994 and 1996. And at that time, the incidence of the entire autism spectrum was 1 in 10,000 children. And when a child showed up in clinic, who was on the spectrum, all the residents were paged because you don't know if you're gonna see this again. So it was a big deal. And unfortunately, when we did diagnose autism, the news wasn't good. I told people that the prognosis is dire. You really need to grieve your loss and get ready to put your child in residential placement. That was the message we gave 15 years ago. It's a different story today. So. Last week, the CDC released the newest incidence findings that the incidence in the United States is now one in 91 children is on the autism spectrum. And put up the Curtin family here in Utah, all six of their children are on the autism spectrum, which is also something kind of new. Back when I was in my residency, it was not thought to cluster in families. We definitely know that that is not the case today. So something else we could possibly talk about discussion. And it's also something that's starting to get more and more prominence, especially the tragic Jeff, uh, Jeff Travolta um, earlier this year, kind of just raises the, the need that although we've come a long way, there's still a long way to go. And in 1997, it came home to us. This is my son, Brennan. He was born in um, 1996, and shortly after his first birthday, my wife and I started to get worried about him because some of the things that he we found really kind of cute and amusing about him as an infant, as really liking to look at books for long periods of time, suddenly started to become worrisome when we realized the books had to be in certain orders, 
And it really wasn't the pages he was looking at, but really the shapes of the books, because they had different varied sizes, um, different textures on them. And that is what he was paying attention to. He also uh, was not talking. Um, he had a few words, but then he <laughs> lost them. And really was just not seeming to socially engage with either myself or my wife or any of our relatives. Or so he, so in 1996, uh, I'm sorry, 1997, shortly after he turned 18 months, he was diagnosed. And for 1997, that was remarkably early to get a diagnosis. And our lives changed after that day. <coughs> kind of were lost of, as to what to do um, for him. My training really did not prepare me well. Obviously, we weren't ready to ship him off to a residential facility, but what do we do for him? And like I said, I'm a book guy, and this is one of the books that really made a difference. Um, it's called Let Me Hear Your Voice by Catherine Maurice. And in it, she describes the intensive therapies that they did to try and maximize the functioning of their daughter who had autism. So armed with that information, we started our home program. And 40 hours a week, six days a week, Brennan, we met with some of the hardest working people I've ever come across in my life. And we, our family, owes so much to them. This is Michelle working with Brennan there, working on what's called PECS, which is Picture Exchange Communication System. It's a way of trying to have him be able to communicate with us. Um, so he made some progress with that, but made a lot of progress in other areas. And then the Vista School opened. And we were really lucky to get Brennan in there when he was five years of age, and he's been there ever since. And this is the Vista School today. When Brennan went to the first went to the Vista School, it was in a very small house in downtown Hershey. It had four students in it and four staff. Today, there are 67 students, 70 staff, and, and their annual budget is $7 million. So it's a, an amazing growth, and, and I've been really um, honored to be part of that institution. So Vista School has been an amazing part of our lives. Brennan's. And it's there that I met Peter Gerhart. And Peter was doing some consulting work for Vista when it was opening up. And Peter is the president and scientific director of the Organization for Autism Research. And Peter also comes in, speaks at the annual meeting here frequently. He's a great speaker. But why I put Peter's picture here is it, um, he was really instrumental in helping me think about goals and aspirations for people on the spectrum a little bit differently. Caught up in the home program years that we were and the intensity of it and doing drills after drills and program after program and getting matching skills and sorting skills and getting tolerance for adverse stimuli and a hundred other things. Literally his program binder was like this. But Peter is really helpful in helping me understand the importance of being selective and choosing goals. So he can sort eight different colors. Okay, is that really useful? And the whole idea of functionality and life skills and lifespan. And if, if this doesn't happen today, does it make a difference or not? 
So Peter was really helpful in helping me change how I thought about things. And a couple other books I read also changed how I started to think about things. So this is a beautiful book, The Ride Together, by a brother and sister of an adult with autism. And Paul Karasik is a graphic artist, and his sister Judy is a journalist. And they alternate chapters. And the brother does his as a cartoon, a graphic novel, and the sister writes, and oftentimes they're writing about the same event from their, each of their own perspectives. It's a really beautiful book for families who are on the ride together, as they put it. And then I also read Blink, which is probably something a lot of you have read. And just having the understanding of how much perception and cognition happens on, a, on so many different levels and how that is so different for the guys that I was seeing with autism and trying to make sense of all that, particularly in, in regards to social world, you know, because so much of us make decisions without understanding how we're making them, but they're good decisions, and how do you break that down and teach that to someone who's lacking it? And Brennan has a sister, Hope, she's two years younger, and we often say that the, by far the best therapist for Brennan has been his sister. And um, she's just been an amazing joy and asset to our lives and loves her brother to death and um, has really been through a lot with him. And we're really fortunate that Brennan has that really good relationship with his sister. but. A lot of the guys that I see and treat, and girls, but mostly guys, that I see and treat um, don't have those close relationships with their siblings. And moreover, they really don't have close relationships with any other children. And that was really starting to make, I was really starting to think about that a lot, about not only do they not have the skills, but they don't have the access to improve those skills. And that's when I met Deborah Bidel when she joined the faculty at um, Penn State Hershey. And Deborah's work had, to that point had been on social anxiety in children. And she had a, a model of children overcoming their social anxieties by working with their peers so that they were given the tools to be more comfortable, more competent, better able to tolerate social situations. And then they were put in those social situations with peers as a way of trying to generalize those skills immediately. So working with Deborah, we came up with CSST, which stands for Comprehensive Social Skills Training. It's an adaptation of her model that based for people with Asperger's disorder and high-functioning autism. So those would be the people on the spectrum who have more advanced skills, particularly with language. About half the people who have autism spectrum disorders don't have functional language. That is, they can't use language reliably to express their needs and wants. And the other half do have functional language. And then there's a group of those who are more proficient than others. And they're able to understand the concept of conversation, turn-taking, but still are disasters socially. And this was the initial audience, this is the initial target audience that we were going after with our program. So we went through the pilot, did 32 kids. 28 of them demonstrated moderate to significant improvement. 
and we further modified it. Now it's in a phase two trial. So we're pretty happy with how that's going. And that was with um, eight to 12 year olds. Oops, let me go back. But that kind of spun me off into my, my own unique kind of interest in understanding how face perception interacts with social ability. And a lot of work here, and I promise you this is the most schematic I'll go today, but a lot of things argue that the basis of most social interactions is a good ability to read faces and to use that information in a meaningful way. But if you look all the way over here and it says other factors of influence, that's what I'm interested in, is in can we create experiences that will drive the process backwards? meaning allowing more social comfort, lessening social anxiety, so that what was thought to be a one-way street now can become a two-way street, and that the social skill and proficiency allows for people to become better at reading faces, and then it kind of loops back and has more social efficacy and more pay. So that's what I'm looking at right now. And I can bore you to tears with all the fMRI data and fMRS stuff that we're doing, but I'll kind of move on and then see what your, what your questions are. A couple more books I'm going to... Um, Unstrange Minds is really a beautiful book by uh, Roy Grinker. Really, really, really funny story. <laughs> um, last year I was asked to speak at the OR conference, um, Peter's group, and he asked me to come down and speak. And one of the really nice things that they do at their conference is they have a dinner um, before the conference starts with all the speakers. Really very nice evening. And I was sitting at a table. Um, Luke Sai, who I knew well, was sitting next to me. And then this other gentleman was sitting next to me and was, you know, had a great conversation with him, but I really didn't know who he was. Um, and when I kind of asked him about what he was speaking about, he kind of just brushed me off and said, oh, I have a new book. And it's when I went up to the hotel room that night to read, and I was reading his book. So <laughs> I felt pretty silly, um, particularly when I realized what I had said about certain questions they asked me. But oh well. So know who you're reading at the time. <laughs> One other person who's um, making a real big difference in our lives right now is Janice Light, who is up here at State College. And she is in the Department of Communication Sciences and Disorders. And Janice does a lot of research in assistive technology, um, different forms of technology which enable people with all kinds of different disabilities, but particularly autism, to communicate better. And Brennan is now using an assistive device. He has a speech generating device which enables him to kind of express some of his wants and needs. So there's different photographs that he can access and he can go through menus. And it's kind of like a tablet laptop basically that he takes with him and access different windows. And when he touches them, it'll speak for him. It's a means of trying to engage and understand that communication is interactive. But so, um, so we brought Brennan up to see Janice to get her opinion about him. And she said, well, I think he can read. And I'm like, well, he doesn't have any letter recognition. And he, you know, there's no way. And she was like, no, I can teach him to read. So, so we've been bringing Brian up to her once a week for six months now. And he is 
reading. So, you know, it's forced my wife and I to just totally rethink our son, you know, something I thought he would never be able to experience, you know, uh, and me, you know, with, I love books, and, you know, and just like, well, that's just not something he's going to have in his life, but to know that, well, maybe he will, you know, it's, it's really forced me and my wife to confront some expectations that we thought we had of him and to really kind of broaden his, the, the, the opportunities for him, so we owe her a tremendous debt. So one of the things that he really likes to do right now is access videos on YouTube. Favorite, one of his most preferred things to do. And so there will be a list of videos by their description. So it might be like, um, he likes um, The Muppet Show. So it may be Kermit Sings, and he'll know what that means, or it would be Baseball bloopers, which is not what he likes, but it'll just be the words, and then he has to, and he's pretty accurate in matching them up. So he he clearly has the concept of what those words represent. Does he have a picture of the word? No, but he'll push the he'll push the word, and then the picture will come up afterwards. But no, it's just language. So. What's next for us down at Penn State Hershey? Um, so we were recently awarded one of the ASSERT grants from the state, which stands for Autism Service, Education, Research, and Training. So we are responsible for the 24 counties in the central region of the state in regards to autism initiatives, excellence in service delivery model, innovative research. And two of the projects that were funded under that large center grant were to bring the CSST program up for adolescents and adults. So the adolescent version is actually going right now. It's going quite well, and the adult version will probably launch in the summer. Just want to leave you with a message that we all really have to change how we think about people with autism. You know, so you know, people with autism can now be the pretty girl in America's Next Top Model. They can be the star who saves the game for the high school team. They can be the romantic lead in movies. Anyone seen Adam? It's a great movie. They can be the entire <coughs> cast of a sitcom. <laughs> <laughs> they can put on a musical. It's another documentary really worth seeing. And they can learn to read. So this is Brennan today. So he is about to turn 13 two weeks, and uh, he's reading one of the books that John has put together for him, and it's absolutely his favorite, most preferred thing to do right now, is read his books. So, his former English major dad is thrilled beyond measure. <laughs> so, there's our contact information. Um, so, our center's called Autism Central PA. Um, the website will have information as we are ready to enroll the next cohort. Um, information about the different research projects will be up there. What differentiates autism from maybe other forms of developmental delay is really the social piece. The difficulty interacting with other people socially, the difficulty understanding social cues, understanding how to perceive faces, how to take in that information and make meaningful decisions about it. Whereas people with MR you know, can still do that.
as a follow-up to that, um, have the has the incidence of these other diagnostic categories gone down concomitantly with the increase in uh, on autism? Some of them have. Um, so back in the forties. Um, Childhood onset schizophrenia was a very common diagnosis in this country. Right now, it's rare. I think I've met one in my career. Those kids who were described as having schizophrenia in the 40s had autism. And that now that we have a better way of describing it, understanding it, those diagnoses have definitely shifted to the autism column. But other things have not gone down. So. For instance, other forms of mental retardation or other specific um, developmental delay syndromes are the, the usual incident rates that they have been before. What's going away is these undifferentiated diagnoses. So the kind of global delay, non-differentiated, the uh, mental retardation, non-differentiated, those diagnoses are going away, which is good because they should go away. We should have a better understanding of what, um, what people are struggling with and how to match the different therapies with different things that they might have needs in. Michael, could you say a quick word to the group about what autism spectrum means? Sure. So, so autism spectrum refers to a cluster of diagnoses. So there's five of them right now. Um, with the autism, pervasive developmental delay, Asperger disorder, and then there's two really rare ones, something called childhood disintegrative disorder and Rett syndrome. So those two, the last two I just talked about, extremely rare, a handful of cases in the country. But the other three are very common. And you can really think of them as being on a continuum. With the people most widely affected, they'll have communication needs, social needs, emotional needs, behavioral needs, they'll have trouble with sensory input, they may have difficulty with behavior. That, that classic collection of symptoms would be meaning what we call autism. So they would have the whole diagnosis. And then people who are not quite as impaired but still have significant impairment would be um, people struggling for pervasive developmental disorder. Um, do, you, um, do you see um, obsessive compulsive behaviors in this? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, that, it's something we see really commonly, um, actually. What kind of makes it different, though, from people who have the classic OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, is people who have OCD have some kind of obsessive thought, like something tragic is going to happen, or something will befall me, or someone I love, or something, some thought that is causing them anxiety. And then the compulsive behavior is a means of relieving that anxiety. So the hand washing helps them feel like I'm not gonna get sick. Or the counting things means that the world's not gonna end tomorrow. So the, the thought is closely tied with the behavior. With people on the spectrum who demonstrate the compulsive behaviors, the O part, the obsessive thinking, is not necessarily there. Or if they have obsessive thinking, it's not in regards to, if I don't do this, this will happen. It's more like, I need to do this because this is the way it should be. 
Um, so the compulsive, or is that the obsessive? Right. So the obsessions, the obsessions, the thought, the compulsions, what you do. Um, schools can be really resistant to doing social skills programs, but it's the perfect environment to do it because you have a captive audience, right? You have the kids there. You have multiple naturalistic environments to do it. You know, you have art class, you have recess, you have in-between classes, and you have a typically developing peer group there that can serve as social coaches and models, which is shown in research study after research study to be the most effective in promoting social generalization. So, um, I don't know. I, I, I wish I could give you the magic answer that will have your school see the light, but um, email me, I can send you some of the research studies that have been shown to demonstrate the efficacy of social skills instruction in, 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 in the classroom and in school. Maybe that would be helpful for you. And we will have Dr. Murray's information on our website as well, which is rps.psu.edu, so you can search our site for that. And there was a young lady back here. Um, your research, mm -hmm. um, did, you focus, did you focus on mostly mainstream, like the children in mainstream classrooms, or did you focus on children um, in their setting, like, around individuals with autism? The way our research project works is the, the kids come in for a group uh, where a specific skill will be taught. Um, and in that group will be multiple kids who have Asperger's or high-functioning autism. They're all able to use language at a similar level. And there is... Um, two facilitators and, and the opportunity to practice skills. And that part takes place for about an hour and 15 minutes to an hour and a half, depending on how much we have to get covered. And then the group adjourns, and then we go on an, what we call an outing. So it may be Chuck E. Cheese, bowling alley, it may be miniature golf, it might be anywhere that you would expect kids to have birthday parties, basically. And when we get to there, there is a group of typically developing kids waiting for us. So, and the kids get paired up with, um, and, they, and they rotate through the different peers with them that, you know, that are in their um, outing group. And they are really instructed to use the skill that they were just taught. And the peer confederate, the, the typically developing kid, is aware of what they were just been taught and has been prompted on strategies to cue them, to coach them, to have them practice the skill in a real world situation, in a real life time frame. So and that's, that's part of their therapy? Mm -hmm. okay. mm -hmm. So that whole afternoon takes three hours. Okay. And then they have many assignments that they do at school, and there's also a mini assignment they do in the community in between sessions. This gentleman is next, and then we have a couple questions on this side. My daughter is also in the State College School District and is 15 and has, has been diagnosed with Asperger's. Um, she does have an IEP through the school district, but she also was referenced to Penn State's, um, to the campus's child psychology department, and they had a wonderful program which helped her with a lot of what you're talking about. Uh, talk to your teacher, talk to the counselor, find out how you can get that reference there, because it did help my daughter a lot. Thank you for that. How do the insurance companies uh, view uh, autism? Do they provide any uh, funding for, uh, quote, treatments? Um, 
there is a lot a there let me rephrase that there had been many auto, uh, many insurance companies that did not recognize autism as a diagnosis up until last year it's shocking i mean it just i don't even know how they sleep at night but um so a lot of the things that we would treat them for a lot of times we had to use what we call secondary diagnosis so um like the gentleman was saying, you know, with the compulsive behaviors and the anxiety related to that, even though they had autism, you know, their billing diagnosis was anxiety. Um, so that was one way of getting them services. Um, why I say that changed is the insurance, re the Autism Insurance Reform Act was signed into law last year, which um, prohibits insurance companies from not recognizing that. They must treat autism uh, and reimburse for that. And they also must reimburse services up to $36,000 a year per, per child under 21. So I, I'm hopeful that things are going to start to change and that a lot of kids who, and families who have been really struggling to access the right kinds of services for their children um, are going to be able to, to afford it you know, and, and have um, more reliable delivery. But our, how we've written the description of the resource center is that it will grow and change with time into a case management system where that, like you described, a case manager would be help, helping families make decisions about what services are you going to access right now and making sure that you are able to find the right provider that has the skill set to help a particular child with whatever issue it might be. So we're hoping that it kind of grows into a system, because we do recognize what you're talking about, and, and you're right, and none of the systems talk to one another, right? So all the professionals at school don't talk to all the mental health professionals who don't talk to, you know, and then you have competing treatment plans. And as a parent, you know, you have a lot of decisions to make. There's only so many hours in your child's day, and they also have to have, to have time to be a child. So time is a really precious commodity, you know, you have to make decisions about how you're going to spend that time. And one of the things that we're hoping to do with our search center is really get much better at having evidence-based outcomes for different interventions so that you can really see, is it doing what it says it's doing? And maybe even more important, having an understanding of the kids who do well, who are they? And what do they look like? Is there a certain prerequisite skill set that you need before you enter an intervention as, so that you'll be one of the ones who benefit from the intervention. I think having that piece of information is critically important and we don't, we don't have it at all and we need to start because as the options expand, which is great, wonderful, but we really need to have an understanding of who's going to do well with what when. Yeah. Um, we <laughs> right now are, um, we, we have an adult clinic down at, at Hershey and it's, it's, it's tragic in a way of how many primary diagnoses we're making of people in their 20s you know, and 30s that you know, went through their whole life not quite knowing what was happening or the people around them not knowing. Um, so, so yes, the, the need for adult services is um, really being recognized finally and starting to expand. Uh, there are sections on our website written for young adults um, it also has links to other organizations that are geared to young adults on the spectrum, and we're offering services. Our partner, um, Phil Haven, um, also offers a lot of young adult services as well.
the family that has, because I've been in a situation that has, I'm not six, but the ch many children, mm -hmm. um, how do they coordinate every, and you're a parent, you're, there's two people, one has to work. I mean, I realize both can't because it's just not possible. Mm -hmm. um, how do they coordinate everything? How do they, I, I mean, is there, you have people in and out of the house, you have to go in and out of the house. You can't go out of the house because someone's coming into the house. However, mm -hmm. it, it, I mean, it's just unbelievable. Right. Um, how do people do that? I mean, how do they do that? I, you know, um, so, uh, so my wife is a, um, was, mm -hmm. like you said, she's not working, but was a child psychiatric nurse. When I was child. So we were pretty connected, you know, and where we were. And uh, it took all of us with all our skills and all our tools to get Brian what he needed. You know, and that's just being fairly sophisticated about the whole system. People who don't have that, I don't know how they do it. I'm, I'm just in amazement. Um, we're really trying to... Correct. That was a really large part of our grant in the for State was really trying to have the, the Department of Public Welfare and the Bureau of Autism Services really understand how overwhelming it is for families when they get the diagnosis and trying to figure out the right thing to do. For them. So our resource center is a really small step in that direction. We're hoping it gets much larger and more sophisticated with time. Um, one of the things that we recommend family with multiple children affected is to have really good um, intensive case management at the, at, the, at the county level and try and have the same ICM for all of your affected children. It makes the, the coordination takes one step out needing to coordinate everything. Um, as much as possible, try and have the higher level folks, whether it be your behavior specialist consultant or your speech therapist, be the same provider so that it takes some of the coordinating, but that's not always possible. Sorry, it's not an easy answer now. <laughs> it's not I, easy, I, that's fine, okay. I think there was a question, did you have a question? Yeah, I, you mentioned in the, in the social skills training that, that the kids involved had language. Do, do they all have spoken language or, or yes. some of them? Oh, so there's none with assistive devices, because that was, whether you had gotten to work in that in yet. The, um, and I probably glossed over that slide really quickly. So the one that said next steps, we also are writing a grant for something called the Assistive Technology Social Awareness Program. So really looking to, our goal is to have social skills interventions for people on the spectrum across the entire lifespan and across the entire spectrum. So that we will have meaningful social skills interventions for people who have no language and that and, and moreover, that that social skill intervention involves their typically developing peers. So they're not, you know, I think that's the last barrier we really need to get through. You know, we got our kids in schools, but they're still socially isolated. They're still not having contact with typically developing peers to any significant degree. And like we saw with Hope, like the research study is showing, you know, study after study, they are the most effective in promoting social skills and social generalizations. We gotta be using them. And the kids that are in our research, the typically involved kids, love it, love it. They feel so proud of themselves, and many of the kids and the participants are still talking to each other, you know, 18 months later. You know, what an amazing, unforeseen, but really happy outcome. Yeah. 
the increase in the incidence? Um, the number, when you look at the number from one to 10,000 to one to 91, it is staggering like how much it's increased. I think we're gonna find out that there's something that is causing us to see it more beyond, we're more sophisticated diagnosticians, we have a broader understanding of the spectrum. I mean, those are major factors, but there's going to be something else. What that something else is, I don't know. Um, how much is your research also going to look at the way our school systems are set up to deal with kids that are high functioning? Uh, one thing that I always questioned when my daughter was in elementary school They've gone to an open classroom concept, which worked wonderfully for her older sister. But for my daughter with autism, it was always she had trouble paying attention. Paying attention, well, when they ask her, uh, she would answer, that, well, those boys over there are messing around and they're going to get in trouble, as you say, that's part of the secret. And I often wondered where they had more than one classroom. Uh, back in the Stone Age when I was in school, of course, we sat in our desk, was quiet, the teacher taught. Mm -hmm. But it seems like that type of system would have been better for her. Mm -hmm. Since we have multiple classrooms, why not look at something in that nature for, especially since the diagnosis is going up so much as right. so, so one of our partners on the center grant is the Vista Foundation, who you know, is really doing some very innovative work in looking at educational modifications and fluency and learning. And, and one of the things that they are very much looking at are what are the key components that contributes to a child's educational success and skill development, and what are the pieces that need to be maintained across environments. So not only can learning happen at school, but it can also happen at home or in the community. And I know they are looking at classroom modification. I, that's not something that I really familiar with other than being able to give the two-second blurb when it talks like this, but uh, um, I know it's being looked at. In reference to the environmental factor, what's your professional opinion on the gluten-free, casein-free diet? Gluten-free, casein-free diet. So one of the big biomedical interventions that um, is out there is taking certain um, proteins out of the diet because for people with autism, it's thought that they don't metabolize those proteins, proteins properly, and then that leads to some of the symptoms that are seen. And um, there's a lot of websites and, and things purporting that. Um, Jenny McCarthy is a big, strong advocate of that, if you've seen some of her interviews. Um, so gluten is the, um, the protein that's in wheat, so, and casein is a protein that's in dairy products. So it is a rather restrictive diet for for kids, because everything they like has gluten and casein in it. Um, they're doing a really large, very well-controlled study of this diet at the NIH right now, National Institute of Health, for the first time. So I think we're going to have the answer um, soon. Personally, uh, you know, I've had some patients um, do the diet. I haven't really seen any significant improvement, but maybe those weren't the right kids, you know, to to do that. And, 
like I said, once again, you know, we really need to get an understanding of who works for what, when, and when. You know, it's, it's, clearly, some people feel they get a lot of success from the diet. Why do those kids respond to it, and why do other kids not? 